All right, now are we really starting? Okay, now well, I can get I'm serious. I'm kind of rolling I know, into it. I know, you are. <laughs> it's like, I suddenly felt like that got real. <laughs> okay, hold on. I'm going to try to get with it. Welcome to Brilliant, a podcast about innovation, experience, and design. I'm your host, Justin Dobb, and today we talk about rainbows, unicorns, and innovation in the telecom industry. Oh, and butterflies. Stay tuned. It's hard because, like, I'm looking at you, but I'm not really looking at you. This is a really, like, when you just think about space and people, having this stuff in the middle changes it, right? Yeah. It doesn't feel, like, intimate anymore. It feels like this is serious. Okay. This is very serious yeah, business. This is like high school radio. All right. Um. <laughs> yes, high school radio. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> new blog name. See? There yeah. you go. All right. Maybe it's my DJ name. name. DJ, DJ high, name school high school radio. radio. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't mean that in a bad way. Okay. Okay, be very serious now and tell me your name. My name's Anji Wahuja, and I'm the head of product and market development at Cable Labs. Um, so I'll start by talking about who am I before I talk about what I actually do, because I think the who am I is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, I am a people junkie in that I love all things about people that inspire them. I have this emerging technology fetish, so I like to find new things that I can play with to satisfy those deep-seated people needs that are out there. And I guess as a result of both of those, I have a new product habit. Like most of the things that I want to do relate to building, launching, delivering new fundamentally disruptive products into the market. And I was brought in to Cable Labs largely to help the cable and mobile network operator membership of our organization launch new products that will fundamentally not only change the lives of users, which is kind of easy to intuitively latch onto, but change the opportunity landscape for application developers, for people that are experience makers that are trying to deliver new, profoundly enriching, highly engaging experiences to users. Cool. So what is the relationship exactly between Cable Labs and the cable industry? How does that work? So if you think about telecom, if you think about ISPs, and you think about you know mobile network operators, cable companies, those are really expensive businesses to build out. It takes a lot of infrastructure. It takes a lot of new technology. You constantly have to improve upon the technology, the whole network infrastructure, all the things that allow you to take the network infrastructure and deliver experiences to users. So Cable Labs was founded to help accelerate innovation and help accelerate research and development for the sets of companies that were willing to invest in it as members. So our relationship is we're a member-funded lab. We have operators all over the world, usually the top leading mobile network operator or cable companies in their market, and they give us a fixed budget every year to go and make awesome things happen. And the notion is we try to create things for their product and their technology roadmap. We also produce research that's proprietary, and this allows them to improve what they bring to market over time and how they bring it to market. What about the work that you guys do affects, say, me or anyone else in our day-to-day -day lives? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And I don't think I would be working in the cable industry if, um, if I didn't think about it from a user point of view um, with this question in mind. If I look around me, almost everything I do from the moment I wake up, literally rolling over and looking at my phone involves data. It involves data that is delivering me information, data that is about communications or is facilitating communication, data that delivers meets my entertainment, it's all things. You know, my appliances communicate with me. You know, I communicate with my partner. You know, if he's in the room next door, I don't shout out now. I send a text and ask a question like, <laughs> when are we leaving for the office, right, or whatever it is. Um, so in this data-driven world, really the imperative becomes how do I move more things faster, better, more securely, um, with greater integrity? And all data is different. It's not all the same. So it may look the same if you want to think about it in terms of coding, but a packet for a gamer is a very different kind of data packet than a packet for a text message. And they need to be handled and treated differently. So it's expensive to keep up with a dynamically changing data-driven world if you think about all the different technologies you have to actually interact with in order to do this. And if you think about how you have to think through what kind of networks are optimized for what kind of delivery. So we spend a lot of time like working through that. And one day, you know, the hope is there's enough artificial intelligence that you can just dynamically provision a network that can do whatever you need it to do on demand. 
and everybody can kind of get that market need met that way. But for now, there's a lot of just sort of forecasting what the needs are going to be and investing in the right kind of infrastructure to meet them. Did that make sense? Yeah, it totally made sense. So how does one wake up one morning and find themselves driving innovation at a telecom R&D lab? What was the career path that got you to that position? I ask myself that often. <laughs> uh, you know, a little bit, it's a little bit of serendipity in that you know, I started out in a very abstract area in my career. I was, you know, I studied econ, did strategy at Boston Consulting Group. Really cool stuff. It was, it still felt like the liberal arts of the business world, very conceptual, very abstract and, and kind of academic. And then I ended up thrown into this world of doing turnarounds of distressed companies. And these companies were highly levered, so like bleeding cash all over the place. Um, and it was an awesome baptism by fire. But the core to actually fixing problems like that when you're dealing with turnarounds is not just how do I recapitalize this company? How do I like renegotiate my debt? It's how do I grow or how do I constrain costs? Which products do I actually support? Which ones do I kill? Which ones do I tweak? How do I pivot the organization to support those efforts at the product level? So product really is a growth engine. So having done that for a couple of years, and I loved the intensity of it, I ended up saying, you know, I'd like to be more strategic with product, right? How do I think about the future of products and not just figure out how to tweak products that are already existing and perfect the product portfolio? And so that took me to venture capital. And, you know, I, I loved what I learned because I was dealing with emergent spaces and emergent technologies. Um, but as you graduate up the ranks in venture, your responsibility becomes much more about managing the capital and a lot less about working with the portfolio companies on product and strategy. The more I got into fundraising, the less I was actually interacting with the products of my portfolio companies or the product makers, the creators, the developers, the you know, chief product officers, or even the CEOs. And I missed that kind of action. So that took me into, and this was sort of a very probably emotional, intellectual response to that career shift in my mind. I think I just wanted to work with startups so badly at that point in a deeper way that I started my own firm with a couple of former colleagues and friends. And we went off and consulted to a bunch of media tech startups um, for like a decade. I thought that would have lasted maybe two years. <laughs> Scratched my itch. I would have moved on, gone back into like the world of Fortune 100. Um, Fortune 500 companies, but no, the, the, the itch lingered. And so for 10 years, I did that. And then one day made an offhand remark about how um, I had a gaming client. It was an MMO, which is a massively multiplayer online. In this case, it was a role-playing game. Um, game. And, and one of their greatest constraints, and this company had this like amazing physics engineer. I mean, their game engine was just cool. So the, the gameplay was totally different. Everything about this game was cutting edge. It was the South Korean dream team that had delivered one of the biggest MMOs to date into the market. And they were locating the game in the U.S. And they had two big constraints, right? One is physically, where do you locate all your servers and where do you get the staff so that you can actually localize the experience and deliver a good game experience, which has a lot of network considerations involved in it. But two, the network was the constraint. It's not the networks in the United States are not necessarily what they are in Seoul, Korea. And so you know, you're finding all of a sudden that it's like, oh, but the game's not performing in the way that I want it to perform. And that just led me to think through over the next several media clients that I had, all of these new game changers that people wanted to do in areas like VR before it was even called VR. And now we talk about XR. We weren't even talking about VR, but people had, without that term coined necessarily, they had those things in mind. And they wanted those experiences to be highly interactive and just really in, like engross you. And it would have been nearly impossible to deliver that in the home environment off, you know, a dial-up connection, right? We all knew that. But, you know, it started to really push the boundaries of what does a network need to do to facilitate the entertainment world of tomorrow or the communications world of tomorrow. And so I made this flippant remark with literally a margarita in my hand standing in a pool. And the woman who heard it, who uh, runs a marketing firm that, that we also work closely with, um, said, you know, there's this, there's this place called Cable Labs where I think they solve problems just like that. Maybe you should go talk to them. And I'm like, you know, what? Wait, what is this thing? I've never heard of this thing. And so I did a little research, and it was a bunch of very highly qualified scientists and engineers. And I thought, that's insane. I would never, like, what would they want to talk to me about? Um, but as it turns out, the chief strategy officer got on a call with me and thought, hey, let's figure out how to make a role that actually works for you and works for us. And I promise you, you'll we'll, we'll find you interesting, and you'll find us interesting. And so four and a half years later, it's all kinds of interesting, <laughs> probably more interesting now than it was when I first started. As I understood it, you kind of help these engineers start to think more about user experience as a driver for R&D versus starting from a 
technology level. Is that accurate? You know, I think what's really impossibly impressive about what they do is they deal with really challenging problems, and they are based in, in science. And when you think about that, you can spend a lot of time just thinking about the science of the problem, the math of the problem. And it's very easy to not be centered on the user and the user need because that's not the problem that you're grokking in the moment. So when I came in, my goal was to basically pair what I knew about users and what I knew about future users, most importantly, because I invent for more than three years out with the likes of these beautiful geniuses. It was really saying, you know, how do we, how do we be better informed about what we're going to experiment with? And this actually gets also at the heart of the difference between innovation and new product development. Cable Labs is an innovation lab. And the big difference for me coming into this, having been a new product developer and working in that space, is innovation is a lot more experimentation than it is actually a structured development of a product and release of a product based on you know, your more traditional MRD. When you're working in innovation, because you're working for a future user in a future environment with a future landscape and future technologies that you think might come to bear, but you don't have them to work with in your concept yet, you basically start to think through all these different pieces of the puzzle separately as units, and you experiment on those units separately and then develop a more cohesive picture, which then becomes the basis of what might be a new product. You overlay all the business on it, and then you take it forward. In most other environments, you start with the user need, manufacture something for it that meets the cause. So this is kind of a little bit different in that the cycle starts in a different place. And so it requires a really cool collaboration between the engineers and my team, and, and other people within groups at Cable Labs that work on the business side of the house. And I have to say, it's, it's really it's special because you learn new things all the time, stuff that's literally mind-blowing. Um, and then there are times where, like, you'll say something that you think is pretty intuitively obvious, like you just observed this in a bunch of users, and they'll hear the aha, and they'll say, oh, that's what that was, right? Like, you know, I saw it, but I didn't know what color to call it. And yeah. so it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of neat how it all works together. That's a very rainbows and unicorn kind of perspective on... And don't like forget the butterflies. And butterflies. Um, what are the challenges, right? So working in an organization like this, or any organization, you can even abstract it because, I mean, you've worked with a lot of different companies. What do you think are just some universal challenges when it comes to having an innovation mindset or having innovation drive the vision of a company? Yeah, I mean, I didn't mean to make it all sound like Katie from Horton Hears a Who because it is nothing like that. And if, by the way, nobody knows what that is, you should really just go look up some of those <laughs> some of those little clips online. I can't believe I just said online. Like there's anything else like at there's, this point. Yeah, it's all data. It is hard as expletive that I should not use. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, I have had really intense roles with really just almost impossible deadlines and timelines. And those were simpler problems to solve because everything was down to a few dimensions and nothing was like mired in ambiguity. There were uncertain things and there were things that, you know, you generally didn't know how it was going to pan out. So it was a probabilistic world, especially like when you're doing turnarounds or even strategy. But this is like all ambiguity all the time. And so you are constantly beating your head against a wall of intuitively, I know there's a there there. I have nothing that disconfirms that hypothesis. So I have to keep believing in it, but I don't have a solution yet or I don't have the makings of a solution, or I don't have the technology that fixes that problem. Like, this is like a really simple problem, but, well, it's not a simple problem. It's like an impossible problem, the speed of light. I can't change that as a you constraint. You certainly cannot. And, you know, it's, and so if I'm talking about things related to latency, like you want to do something in real time with somebody in California, and I have to move data across that span, forget about around the world, I am going to be impacted by physics in a way that I cannot change. So that means I have to think through what the experience design needs to be differently than mimicking the real world, right? How do I make you feel what's better than the real world where I'm limited by physics? And this is true for gaming, right? You know, where your servers are matters. And, you know, in the end, there's so many laws of physics that actually constrain what we can do. And, and the other real big constraint that I think, it, I wouldn't say it causes stress, but it causes an optimization issue. You can't always invent for the edge case, right? Because we're talking about billions of dollars in investment that are going to affect billions of users in the world that are going to affect billion-dollar markets that are built on top of it. So you have to invent with enough of the applicability and the robustness of what you're building in mind, but you are always solving for this longer-term edge case, right? Because the future is not yet here. It's going to start out in its very nascent stage. And so timing that, that whole market readiness, that whole when do we actually go long on something like light fields? Light fields are awesome. I want light fields. I want a light field home. I want to just live in light fields. Um, you know, I like my analog life, but um, that would be a pretty cool existence. But, you know, we're not 
probably there yet where yeah. it makes sense for you to have a home that's built around light fields. When you say light fields, I guarantee a lot of people who listen to this podcast have not been exposed yet to that. Yeah. So, oh my God. Okay. So we could talk about the science of this for a really long time. And there's um, there's light field light, just what I call it, because I think there are attempts um, in the market. Like I think the red phone um, is one of, oh, an the, example of yeah. that. It was a terrible failure. Yeah, but I mean, look, everybody's going to try, right? So they're going to, and that's that's the other thing with any kind of an emergent space. You're going to have early tests of the market, like early products that get released just to see how people re- react and respond to them. I think Google Glasses would say that, you know, it makes sense to do what they did. Maybe it was just poorly timed, right? Or it wasn't presented as a product or it was prematurely. I mean, we should probably redact well, all that. Let's digress a little bit into yeah. that because we've talked many times about using story to really understand if a product or service yeah. is designed properly. Had anybody gone through the experience of someone wearing Google Glass in a public space with people who are not wearing Google Glass? Um, so you walk into a space yeah. wearing a camera on your face yeah. in the gym, in a restaurant. and you know, Yeah, it, it feels invasive, right? If you're the observer. Um, I'm, I don't know what kind of user testing they did. My guess is very little other than the, the engineers from Google wearing them out yeah. and being, you know, they don't necessarily have a reputation for being the most empathetic uh, people in the room, the Google engineers. I don't know. The ones that I know at Google X are awesome. I can say that. And, and they are very focused on future forward problems, which I love. And they generally have a the bent around doing the greater good. But this is an engineering thing in general, right? Engineers are pushing science to the edge. And when you're product oriented, you're pushing what people want to the edge and trying to meet that like edge way out there. So it's, again, a different orientation. Both paths are right. But to do things yep. that are awesome, you have to do both and bring them together. So getting back to, to light fields, like I, I think the coolest thing about light fields, and I, I won't get into the science of it, and there are a bunch of people who are better able to talk about the science of it at our shop. But when you are actually in an environment where you think about the displays are not actually, they're kind of like no longer displays to you, they're transmitting light, right? And you're receiving it. And you're standing in the middle of the projection, and you're actually able to create occlusions. So you know, if you're standing in front of a building that's part of a light field display, you're going to be blocking that portion of the building. And so it feels very real. But the beauty is the content doesn't have to be what we're restricted to in like an analog or a video world. It can be anything. And that's where like, I think for experience makers that are out there, it becomes a whole new thing. So imagine going into, you know, you're going to go have Thanksgiving dinner with your family and you want to sit down at the table and you all live in different parts of the world, well, I can walk into this dining room. That's, again, feeling pretty analog, right? Things yep. look the same. But what if I wanted to go to my community on Mars that I built in, you know, 150th life or whatever the 150th version of Second Life is? <laughs> um, so. Even the second one isn't doing that well. So Yeah. But, I mean, if you think about it, inventing things that mimic what you've already done, it's a little less interesting than inventing things that transport you to places that you've never been that you just create in your mind. There's a whole bunch of imagination out there that still needs to be unleashed. So you interact with media like light fields and you're like, I can see how this leapfrogs everything else. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely bullish on uh, human creativity. So yes. I'm, I'm with you on that Yeah, one. well, I mean, judging from all the musical equipment in this room, <laughs> yes, that, that would be about right. You've mentioned creating product is three or five years out. So what is the progression of research, speculation, ideation, projection? Like, how do you approach any individual kind of project in that regard? Yeah. So that's the other really odd thing about a place like the lab that I'm working in, um, and and in particular, innovation labs in general. So this is like a commonality across them. Because the opportunity can emerge in different places, like it can emerge in the lab and the science, it can emerge in theory, right, on a whiteboard or doing some math somewhere. It can emerge in observing a user need where you actually suddenly say, oh, I might have the tools in like three years to solve this. It can emerge in all different parts of what we would call the product development life cycle. And so you can kind of interrupt that process at any point and build out a whole new set of stages to say, how do I check my math on whether or not where I'm experimenting is going to lead me to the right target in the end? So you can slowly disambiguate the things that you don't actually understand around you In new product development, it was much more linear. I mean, that's all I can say. It's like when you're working in an innovation environment, your research is largely focused on a user that doesn't exist today. And and as it is, when you go out and survey users, they can't tell you what they want, right? They can tell you what they like if you show it to them and describe it with enough integrity. But in the future user, I have to think about how people are evolving and what they're going to need. And, you know, my teams get really deep. They go out and they observe things and they start to build trajectories and say, 
you know, well, if this person is like this now, how does that type of person or that segment of people evolve many years from now? And how do other technologies change them? With the science part of it, you know, we're also looking at emerging technologies and what the clips are going to be for each one of those technologies, how quickly they'll evolve. So you know, like, what's going to be on market by the time you're actually going to try to pull together a solution that's viable. Um, I don't know. Did I answer your question? I kind of feel like I got lost in the beauty of it all. (laughs) I I I got all unicorn there. I was wrapped. That's, wow. I feel like I accomplished something today. So, but my point is I was so involved. I don't know if you answered the question because I was just like uh, listening. Yeah, it's cool. It's like, um, I I would say it's like a lot more bunch of like loops and squiggly lines when you work in an innovation lab doing stuff like this. And in traditional new product development, it was a line, which would then suddenly change course and maybe pivot and become like a diagonal. But it it was always the same line And, and it's the same set of resources. And the other cool thing about working in an innovation lab when you're doing this kind of work is your resource mix will shift dramatically. Like if you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, the thing that I want to focus on is actually related to security on wireless, or it's actually related to AI, or it's related to this, you'll suddenly be talking to a whole other pool of people, and then they'll get to be like artists and influence, you know, what the canvas looks like. So it's not nearly as static. I mean, which is not to say new product development is static. New product development is just awesome, um, period. But, you know, in some environments, it's just a lot more loopy. Than yeah. Others. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that leading an innovation team. What are the kinds of resources that you need to pull in and, and when do you do that? Yeah. So we have really, so internally, we have internal and external resources and both are equally important. Um, it's the, the balance is key. You can't own all the expertise you need and be and scale, um, but you can also, it would be incredibly expensive to afford all the expertise that we need and keep them in house. Um, But on the inside of the house, starting there, I have really strong product managers that come from all parts of high tech. And I purposefully picked people that are not from the industry we're actually inventing within because it allows them to have enough of a bias for trying things and not fear about what hasn't worked in the past. Um, But also it allows them to take their unique perspectives on how their industry's technologies have evolved to look at emerging technologies related to the solutions we're creating and develop their own point of view on what that evolution looks like. So they're also very objective, um, which is good. And and they know other ecosystems. A lot of what we invent is for other ecosystems to build upon. And in the end, innovation is not sustainable if nobody's inventing on top of your innovation. Like that's what creates this longevity and value in the market. So when you have product managers that come from these backgrounds, they know how to think about market relevance and long-term longevity. We also... We partner very closely with our technology strategy team where they're you know, very skilled at sort of figuring out what the evolution of the cable industry and mobile network operators infrastructure is going to look like, what new technologies cause what kinds of efficiencies. Um, they do research on how consumption patterns are changing, like empirical research with data that we have. Um, so we pair very closely with them. And I would say externally, one of our greatest resources, I mean, we've done a lot of work with you guys, for yep. instance. Um, and and we love it. Yeah, and we love it too. It's been it's been a journey every time in all different kinds of problems, like some of which, like we've actually worked with you all to frame, which is really saying a lot because you can go in and you can hire an agency to, you know, produce a product for you, right? Produce art for me that does this. Um, produce, you know, messaging that does that. But in those environments, the parameters are really tight. It's like not very exciting, in my opinion. But when you come to someone and you're like, I have this thing, like there's something that's going to happen with boomers at home that is going to be profoundly different because let's face it, they're not like the greatest generation and I'm not one and I don't really understand how their home can respond to them and where all the sensors are going to be and what kind of entertainment they're going to want and what they're going to evolve like. Well, that's not even a problem yet. I haven't even given a problem statement out, but it's an opportunity. And so to take that opportunity and say, How do we reasonably scope this so we can go and investigate together what we think that life looks like? And then one of the things that you guys brought to the table that was super cool and helped us as a firm sort of think through the innovation process and how to be more skillful at it and more craft-driven is is just sort of taking this concept of story and narrative-based design, right? If I can't tell a story about those users in their future world, I don't understand it well enough. So that's when I stop and say, keep investigating. Or there's not a there there, right? Like they're they're not that interesting to keep investigating. But you can't you can't be done with your understanding if you can't tell a story about that future user and their future space with their future needs and you know the future emotion that they're gonna experience. And that's actually for me the coolest part. If I can imagine that there's like a new place on the emotional spectrum that I've hit a future human being, 
then I've done like my part for civilization and humanity <laughs> by doing like an ounce of inventing towards it. But you have to you have to believe in that vision, which means you have to have it as part of your story, right? You have to know what you've liberated from. That's the the limitations of today. Yeah, and we really look at story as the first prototype. Basically, storytelling is the first technology, maybe yeah. second after fire, right? You had to sit around something to tell the story. We are like hardwired to evaluate the veracity of the things we're being presented with in a story. Yep. We all smell BS a mile away. If you can't tell a story that causes everyone around you to start nodding, yeah. then you don't have what you think you have. Yeah, it's not provocative enough. So we've always found that, you know, that storytelling and going through the process of creating the story really helps to prioritize like what's important. Because if you find yourself leaving parts out, you should probably leave them out of your product or experience design or service design. If it's not important enough to talk about, then it's not important enough to spend time and resources creating. So yeah, we, we really um, approach it that way. And that's why we've really loved the stuff we work on with you guys is because we get to really look out at a future that doesn't exist, start building these worlds, and you get to kind of leak test ideas, right? Like if I can build a really compelling world, everything we use today some storyteller came up with first. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's interesting because just on the veracity piece of it, I, you know, I remember when we were all doing this project and I can't, unfortunately, because I signed an NDA that's 10 pages long and includes my limbs, um, I can't <laughs> actually uh, tell you guys what the project is um, or, or what the technology even is. But we're like, this thing is cool, right? It needs to be part of every interaction you ever have because you'll be safer. It'll be more reliable. It's going to be awesome. Everything will organize itself. It's just going to be like beauty. And then we go out and we test it and we're like, oh, crap, right? It's like, you know, nobody understands this problem well enough as a layperson to understand that it's a real risk that they need to manage. So nobody can pay for something that they don't understand. So it's clearly not a product yet, right? Or maybe it's never a product. So what do you do to justify its existence in this world so that people still have it? Because it is such a neat platform ad. Like you would want to build things on top of this. And so that actually brings me back to, and I remember when we went through that, we all had that same aha, like I went on vacation and it just weighed on me the entire time. <laughs> it didn't matter how buoyant I was in the water. I was just like dragged down by the fact that, man, this research is not going to deliver me anyone's willingness to pay because people don't get the problem. And you guys had come to the same conclusion. And like my team had also kind of like become like mod moderately, I wouldn't say distraught, but it was just like, wow, the wind got taken out of sails. And then we come back to the table like a week and a half later, and it's like, you know what? We're going to find another way to think about how to get this yep. to users without, you know, it's, it's going to have a different economic model to it. That's okay. There's all kinds of business models out there. Another huge part of what we have to do, which is why it's great to work with an experienced design firm like yours that has the marketing background and underpinnings as well as the strategic perspective at a business level. The reason why I personally value that is that is exactly the role that I have to play with my members. I can't just go tell the story to myself and tell it to the engineers and say, this is why you should go beat your head against a wall until you figure out how to get like the science to work to make this happen, um, which God bless them, they do that. Like they will literally, if they've embraced a problem, they will sit there and it will occupy, I think, every available cell in their brain. And it's just, it's really neat to watch the light bulbs go off in their eyes when they're like, oh, I get it. Like, this is cool. I'm going to try to work on this. So I not only have to sell it to them through story and making something relevant and emotionally evocative for them, I have to sell them members, right? It's one thing to go and invent something that's a bunch of IP that, you know, we have. It's another thing to go to the product leaders, the chief product officers, the chief marketing officers, um, the CEOs of their companies, the heads of engineering, and say, it is worth your time to put this in your roadmap for the following reasons, because people in the future are going to need this. And if I can't relay that story to them in a way that is appealing and evocative with a business case right around it, it's not going to happen. And I'll tell you, a business case alone has never been enough because the things you have to do to move things in this industry are so complicated. It is so complex. There's so much equipment out there, so many products that have to interoperate or have interoperability. There's protocols. I mean, you can't just go and make a big, massive move without people believing that there's enough of a cause to do it. Yeah. So story is everything. So from a more physical media perspective, what tools are you using to socialize these ideas with your members or even internally? And how are you creating consensus around that vision? What are the tools you use? I'm assuming 
ultimately there's a PowerPoint at some point. Oh, you but, guys are going to be so disappointed. I'm, I'm a huge talker. <laughs> like, I just <laughs> believe the art of discussion and discourse. Um, no, really, it's like sometimes you have to set up a discussion so it's a bit Socratic, right? Like you have to like get people to sort of like sort it, sort through it. I'm them. all for that, by the way. Yeah. And, it, so. and yeah, we sadly, uh, no offense, Sethi Nadal, um, we sadly do have to use PowerPoint a lot, which I really find is probably one of the greatest constraints to storytelling. Um, the reason being, you spend so much time optimizing the formatting of what you put on that slide that that actually constrains the message. If I could just video discuss things with people and use whiteboards in real time, or you know, I can't wait till there's better collaborative tools out there where I can actually paint a story in real time and work with people and feed their stuff in so I can leave them with an artifact of that whole experience. Um, that would be much better. But yeah, we, we use PowerPoint. Um, we do, we have produced like papers that don't exactly look like papers that have graphics in them. You guys have produced artwork yep. for us where we actually show someone what a future world would look like, a sketch, videos. Um, yeah, talk a little bit about Phil's videos because they're... Oh, Phil's <laughs> videos are awesome. So I, I can't take any credit for those. Um, they are they are something that... Wait, hit... hold on. First, sorry. Who's Phil? Phil is the CEO of Cable Labs. He is an innovation guru. Um, he's got books out on innovation and on innovation process. He spent a lot of time in HP where he, I think, perfected a lot of his innovation trade. I don't know that he would agree with that, but that's that's my observation. The videos that Cable Labs produces, which are pretty much on an, so far have been on an annual release schedule, they address things that are, are sort of critical ways of experiencing life. So it could be work. It could be you know, life is in health, could be learning, um, all of these different things. And so what he believes is you have to show people a future to inspire them to want to build towards it. Very similar to what we were also talking about in terms of framing an innovation project as being worth implementing. He casts these visions of these future worlds. And he spends a lot of energy getting the right production house. We have a great creative in our shop. His name's Eric. Um, we'll actually go and direct these videos. And each one is very different. Each one has a different story arc, a different kind of plot point, different types of protagonists. Um, but the most common element to all of them is they're all telling a world that is completely enhanced by emerging technology, by things that are not readily accessible today, but we can imagine have a huge place in the world of tomorrow. And yeah, it's a great storytelling vehicle. I, I think I showed them when uh, Christy and I gave a talk, um, and I think we showed one, and I remember it was at some innovation conference, and it was amazing. The room was filled with a bunch of people from R&D across different industries, everything from like pharma to, you know, engineering shops to logistics companies. And we showed one on health, um, but it had a very famous actor's famous father um, who's now passed um, in the role of an aging, an elderly man in his home. Ron Howard's father. Ron Howard's father. Yeah. Yes. Rance. So it was this video that featured Rance Howard. Um, who's an incredible actor, and he plays an elderly gentleman, and they he, show his let's life. Let's be clear, he was an el elderly yeah. gentleman. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I don't know the backstory about how, you know, how we got connected with him, but I will tell you, this life looked real, and it looked totally, authentically his in this future world. And there are all these technologies that help him care for himself, um, interact with those that one might imagine have passed, or those that are far away, and you just, you know, he's got a robot, right? That's a companion, you know, and, and everybody talks about companionship and robots, but when you see it and, and you see it directed well, and you can actually understand this relationship, um, it's really powerful. So Christy and I are on the stage and we're giving this talk on innovation and narrative design and how to apply it towards innovation and new product development. And then we show this video there's a bunch of engineers in the crowd and they are crying. Like they are just literally all balled up and crying. And I'm feeling like, oh my God, I'm going to send them off to their afternoon, like with tears in their eyes. And then they came up later and they were like, that was so touching. And it was like, and, and you know, that's the point of these videos. I didn't mean to make anyone cry, but I'm glad you felt, right? Because the whole point of bringing all these things to life through technology is not just for the sake of technology. I mean, we're not all scientists here. We're doing it to make lives better. We're doing it to make lives more interesting and to make lives just more sticky and robust and feel more real in ways that we've now learned to define real. Um, but yeah, there are mornings I wake up where I'm like, I really need to get people to believe. And if I don't get them to believe, I will have failed because it would be one day later to solving that problem. Or, you know, this one day will eventually equal a quarter because we'll miss our window to do something or this quarter will amount to a year. And yeah, I mean, I, I wake up in the morning and tell future me, you better kick ass or like, don't bother showing up. Like, it's just, you got to make it all happen. And, you know, it's not like I'm the one that solves all the problems, but 
somebody's got to be the cheerleader for the future. Agreed. That's great. So not everybody is working in businesses that are focused on innovation. What advice would you give to somebody or what strategies might you give to someone that they could use to maybe start to foster more of an innovation mindset within a larger enterprise? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm going to totally not be all butterflies, unicorns, and like, you know, sprinkles or whatever. Thank you for not forgetting the butterflies this time. Yeah, no, I mean, it's important. I really do believe the statement that someone once said, you know, it's innovate or die. And I think that that's actually true at the most fundamental level as an individual. Like, if you don't want to evolve and change yourself and grow and um, just sort of open up new avenues for your own existence, for the existence of those around you, your loved ones, your friends, et cetera, um, you've just kind of like, you stop living at some basic level in my mind. And I think when one thinks about industry, you don't have to be in an industry that's primed for disruption or that is priming itself to disrupt itself. Innovation is required everywhere, all the time. So the first thing I would say is think about future you doing exactly what you're doing now and ask yourself, what about that is broken? Like, just think about all the things that are around you that make no logical sense other than they're there because of convention or they're there because a history has a bias towards letting them live as long as they can before they die out. And then ask yourself, are you up for the challenge? Are you up for the challenge of trying to make future that, whatever that thing is, happen? And you got to be a champion for you as a protagonist in that story. And if it's not you, find someone else to be the hero and sit there and say, okay, I'm going to help enable them to get from here to there. And when they get there, the world will look like this other different thing. I can't think of a single industry where innovation is unimportant. I can tell you there are many industries and not just in tech where innovation is going to be the key to its survival. I mean, look at how much we were just talking about this earlier today. Um, We were over at the aviary looking at space for a very private, very exclusive event that they've kindly agreed to partner with us on. And um, I'll tell you, like that space was designed with something innovative in mind. It's not just let's have cocktails in a bar. It's not even about that no, uh, at all. <laughs> it's like you, calling it a bar is almost like to completely miss the point of its existence. So it's really a an, an alcohol driven laboratory. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's, um, it's, it's a maker zone. So if you like watching makers do like the best of their trade in practice and you want to participate in and lean into that whole process, that whole experience, it's there for you to access. Yeah. And I shouldn't leave people with the impression that it is anything less than stunningly beautiful. It's a wonderful yes. space. It's just creative everywhere. And and uh, I can say from personal experience, it's a wonderful place to go have a cocktail or three. Yeah, uh, three. <laughs> so, no, it's it's an awesome, I mean, it's, it's very well designed. And, you know, in the course of having this conversation, we're thinking about this event, we're working through the flow, somehow fashion came up and we talked about how that industry has been completely revolutionized, right? Like shopping is actually a pleasure for me now because I can do it online and I can access all kinds of things from all kinds of makers all over the world and designers and people who have a different outlook on what it means, what construction means, right? Like, you know, it's just fashion's been liberated from what used to be a very analog brick and mortar world. And that was a long time, like in the waiting, like that should have happened sooner than it did. But it happened. And it happened because some people were brave enough to wake up one day and say, there's a better way to do this. I mean, that's one of the things in our in our kind of process, we like to ask the question, does your business have to work this way? It's a very foundational, like, and people are always like, what do you mean? Right? So fashion, right? So do you need this boutique? Even like even the resale shop, right? Yeah, now, yeah. Now suddenly resale as a service is the new trend. Yeah. It, you know, and so it's, it's very different and it's all changing and you have to have that mindset. Yeah, you do. And I'm one of those annoying people that literally walks into a store and if I'm watching the flow of traffic, not quite right, I will pull the manager inside and say, do you realize if you actually move this inventory here and you change you know, the orientation like this, yeah. it would be much easier for things to happen. You'd make a lot more money at the end of the day. So you do have to have the mindset. Um, just remind me, uh, so I get the newsletter every day from Trend Watching. You know, our, oh, yeah, we have yeah. a mutual say friend, Max. Uh, yes, he has been on the podcast as well. I will say hello to him. Um, but one of the things that they pointed out was there are stores in Asia now that instead of um, plastic bags or packaging around produce, they're using banana leaves. Yeah, that so, makes sense. So I do think there's going to be something that is more, either it's edible or totally yeah. biodegradable. And like, it's not, packaging right now is set for shelf life. And I think at best, transportation is going to be all you'll get out of these things, if not, you know, yeah. minimizing damage, not total protection. Yeah, do you remember when Moto first opened, the whole eat your menu? 
Oh, yeah. I loved it. It was yeah. like, I didn't really actually like the taste of the menu. I just loved the fact that I could eat my menu and I left nothing behind. Yeah. Moto, like the whole leave no trace, Burning Man philosophy to living. It's yeah. nice. For people who don't know, Moto was one of the first molecular gastronomy type restaurants in Chicago. Yeah, it is. It is much missed. I mean, there's there's great stuff that... And Moto, I would say, opened the door for a ton of innovation just in food. I mean, Chicago's always been known for having a lot of innovation in fine dining. But yeah, Moto was a special set of experiences. Um, but eating the menu. Like once I did that, I'm like, I never want to see a physical menu again that I can't eat yeah, because yeah. I'm leaving a trace behind. Well, I hope you're not eating menus you're not supposed to. I'm not eating menus. What's really tough about innovation? I think one of the most challenging things about innovation is the cycle time. Like it is a process that takes years. With NPD or new product development, you have an idea of when it's going to hit the market and it's soon enough for you to actually feel it like tangibly, almost like there. But with innovation, it's a long, long loop process. And uh, well, you know, the perfect example, the one that we started. Yeah. Um, we started, a pro it was actually the first time we engaged as part yes, of Cable Labs. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yes. Um, so low latency doxis came out of it. And actually, I, I just shared on LinkedIn about it today. And there's a great blog that came out that's actually written for lay people. So let me just say what it is. And then I'll talk about how we got there. Basically, if you're playing an online game and you get hit by lag, it is probably one of the most frustrating things you can ever go through. I know I live with a gamer and I will tell you like there are times where I think he's ready to throw like, you know, something at an object just because lag hit him. I just wonder how many people think lag is a character in the game right now. Lag is not a character. It's latency, which is um, another way of thinking of responsiveness or if you have any kind of an interactive application like online games or you're loading a page right from the internet, it's every time you're sitting there waiting for something to happen or something happened to you and you didn't see it, it's probably a result of latency. It's not actually a bandwidth thing. So about four years ago, the Mignani team and a handful of us from Cable Labs, we went into the field and did a bunch of ethnographic research and you know qualitative research like focus groups. And it was all about how do people feel about their broadband? How do they use their broadband? What does broadband even mean to people? And it turned out that there was a subset of these individuals that we were observing that were gamers. And they were incredibly articulate and they were in pain. I mean, pain. They felt lag was this, this vicious enemy in this world order that they, they just could not understand why it still existed. And from their point of view, they were kind of like, you know, a bunch of really smart engineers made all this network infrastructure work. Why is lag still around? Why is this happening to me? So and just to give a quick stat, like 50% of the time gamers lose, it's often related to lag in some way or another, which is for at least competitive gamers. So it's, it's very important that um, something like this get addressed. So we went out in the field, we did all this qualitative research. Then we ended up following a bunch of just gamers around. So getting deeper into more focused ethnography. And then we started to like determine which artifacts we could actually observe that were lag related. We were able to quantify those artifacts and, the, and why those artifacts actually exist and how often they exist. So frequency and impact. And then we were able to go to the engineers and say, look at this data. Like, this is really odd. Is there a real reason for us to allow this experience to endure? And it, it became this ultimate challenge within our shop to say, how do we make latency go away without harming anything else? So it was right. actually making the pie bigger in the end, um, not from a bandwidth standpoint, but figuring out how to separate applications that are queue building from applications that are non-queue building. And if anybody wants to dig deep into that, there is a white paper on Cable Lab's <laughs> website that will explain it in, in excruciating detail. But I think the most interesting piece of the journey, when you, when you look back at it, and this is like four years later, and you know we're still rolling it out to market, so we're not even at the finish line yet, but we can see it finally. The most interesting part of the journey is it didn't start out with a math problem. It started out with observing users and listening yeah. to what angers them and frustrates them and what they really need. And then we talked to a bunch of game developers and said, okay, like, how do you guys develop your stuff? Like, what's really going on? And we realized everyone's trying to work around the network, and really the network can just optimize itself so that people have a better experience, both developers on one end and users on the other end. Yeah, well, you know this more than anybody, really, that our approach is always, if you can envision a better experience, you can figure out how to make the technology support that. Right, technology finds a way. I'm stealing the line from Jurassic Park. Yeah. Life finds a way. Exactly. And, and you know, getting back to this whole idea of story, you know, in this story, we had a very frustrated protagonist, right? It's a gamer or a series of gamers who ends up destroying their own equipment because they get so mad they throw <laughs> their mouse at something or they, you know, pick up their keyboard and smash it over something all because lag killed them in a game. And if you think I'm exaggerating, there are so many clips on YouTube about this. It's actually funny, some of these montages. But if you step back from the comedy of it all, somebody really did break their stuff because they yeah. got killed in a game and have no idea who shot them. 
we talk to a lot of companies who are innovation curious, as they say, and they have some really basic customer understanding issues yeah. that could lead to some really great innovative solutions, service design issues, um, but they never have a budget for it. And so not only does innovation take a long time, it really takes a long time to get a company, one, to understand what the possibilities are from like really addressing their customer experience from an innovation lens and really getting organized around actually yeah. innovating. And so you have a wonderful situation where you are, where it's like valued. Yeah. You know what? I think I'm really lucky in the fact that having been a venture capitalist and having loved the product side, I'm pretty good at making a business case around something that's got a very long horizon. I, I, I can smell the money or the ROI or the experience yeah. enhancement down the road. And I think because I know how to articulate that, it's it's easy for me to get more excitement than in a typical organization where it's hard to make a business case if you've never really done this so many times. Yeah. Um, so yeah. so I think that that helps. But I'm, I'm lucky I'm in an environment where people actually have their ears open and want to hear, right? They're looking for the opportunity to create. They're looking for the opportunity to generate massive positive impact for users everywhere. And our members want to do that yeah. for their customers. So you have to be able to make the business case. And my wife gets mad at me because I've taught my kids this conversational cadence of, when they ever ask me this question, like, hey, why does XYZ work that way? And and then I just look at them and they go, oh, money. <laughs> and it's not a jaded point of view. Yeah, the no. point is, like, you need to break this stuff down and understand that yeah. when something isn't set up the way you want or something doesn't function the way you want, you need to understand what were the constraints, the financial constraints, right? Yep, absolutely. And And when you start to look at things that way... It actually gives you more opportunity to like say, okay, how's it supposed to work? And then how do you reverse engineer an economical way to do it? And if you can't, then that also is good knowledge to have too. Like, oh, that's a bad road to go down. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think the money angle is, is cynical at all. In fact, here's the here's the take that I often have being one of future optimists too, obviously loving butterflies and unicorns or whatever it is you accused me of earlier. <laughs> you know, in the end, your product portfolio is the growth engine for the enterprise. And it is crucial that every incremental product you release into the market generates so much significant enterprise value so that you can then invest in the next big thing. And so that you can invest in disrupting an industry down the road or disrupting the really speculative innovation opportunities. If you don't generate significant returns, that opportunity is not available, which is Unfortunately, when you look at more mature industries, the reason why you don't see as much of an appetite for innovation is simply because the margins and the cash flow isn't there to support it, right? They're just trying to yeah. keep it going as long as they can, but they're, they're not necessarily banking a bunch of reserves to do something hugely disruptive. I mean, look at the existence of Google Ads. It's, it's purely a function of the fact yeah. that they had so much cash reserves and they had such an appetite to create impact that they can go out and do it. It's Clayton Christensen, right? It's the innovator's dilemma. These, yeah. yeah, they're not set up from a capital standpoint, to make those risks. Right. Right. And there, there's punitive market action that happens when they try to take those risks because it's going to affect their free cash flows and That's right. the bottom line. But that being said, I think they should all at least kind of start to carve out more and more yeah, you know, I, disruption money, right? Uh, rainy day money. That's totally true. And, and that's actually an interesting, I would love to see a study. I'm sure one exists, but now I want to go find it. It's got to be out there. Um, I'm curious if Private companies have a more successful run at innovation than public companies because that level of scrutiny on the part of the street on like where did all that money go and has it delivered returns? Yeah, I don't know that data exists, but I have to agree from anecdotally that that's probably the case. Yeah, which is which is why, you know, in the value you're seeing a lot of companies sort of think through when do I really want to go out, right? When do I want to go public? Maybe it's not worth it because the scrutiny just it impairs your ability to invest in things that would otherwise appear so speculative that the average shareholder wouldn't be interested and supporting that kind of an agenda. Right, like WeWork is going through right <laughs> right now. That was just a strange offering process in the making. And now it's it's on, I guess it's on pause, being it, redone. Is it? I, being, I tried to look this up. Uh, supposedly, they're still going to go out. I just don't know if they're going to go out at the valuation the value, that they had. Yeah. yeah it's so, and, and, but I mean, How would you this, like to be SoftBank, right, who came in with the last round and at a you know, $40 billion valuation. And now they're like, well, actually, it's half that. Well, and SoftBank is in an interesting, its own sort of market dilemma. They have so much capital to put to work, so much capital to fuel what would be awesome market-shaping agendas, but you have to have the right vehicles for that kind of outcome to happen. Yep. And there aren't that many big platform plays that you know are accessible. Well, and the ones that are out there that seem successful, right? Uber. Uber is the 
most successful wealth transfer from rich people to poor people that we've had in our society in a long time. You mean via the gig economy, or how <laughs> no, are you I'm just talking. No, I'm talking about like uh, the investors in Uber are subsidizing rides everywhere in the world. Uber loses a dollar twenty-five on every ride. Yeah, somebody is paying a dollar twenty-five for me out of my ride. They're giving me so if I have an eight-dollar Uber ride, it was actually a nine dollar twenty-five cent Uber ride. And I'm, I say thank you to everyone who's invested in Uber over the years because, you know, they've paid. Every time I take an Uber, they pay part of that ride for me. I, I've got to be totally honest here, brutally honest. And boy, my friends and family, including you, are going to laugh at me after I admit this publicly. They are the best example of conditioning of the user. Ever since I started using Uber, I stopped driving to the office because I could use that time in the back of a car to get something done. Or just chill out, driving in the Bay Area. If you First of all, if you've never done it, good for you. If you have to do it regularly, pray for your life and for the life of everyone else around you. Um, the roads are just governed by nonsensical driving habits on the parts of people that live there and, and bicyclists and motorcyclists and pedestrians, too. It's craziness. But, you know, it's so stressful and so just causes so much anxiety that on days where I really need to get it together or I'm sleep deprived or I just got off a plane... Now I just Uber. And I don't even think twice about Ubering. Like, Chris and I want to go to dinner. We don't sit there and say, oh, how are we going to deal with parking? We're like, I don't even want to deal with a car. Let's just get an Uber and go. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, especially if you are the kind of person who would, if they bought a car, buy a nice car. Yeah. But if they don't buy a nice car, you can Uber a lot. Yeah. If we have two really nice cars that just sit there and look at us as we walk by and get in, and get in someone else's car. Yeah. You should sell the cars. Yeah, we probably will. And, you know, Kara Swisher recently did that. She got rid of her car. She was talking about it. And basically, you know, she'll still use cars. She was talking, hey, there's ride sharing. You can like borrow a car. You can rent a car. You can do all these things. But the concept of do you need to own a car is, is a really interesting question. Actually, I wrote an article a while ago on like, what is the point of the future car? Is the future car actually like some kind of like space where it becomes converts into an entertainment space or a living space? Like, do you really need a car? It's not just about transportation anymore. That's become like a commodity service or a commodity experience. But what can you actually do with the future of the car that could be cool and compelling? I also think that if we're actually ever going to see the self-driving cars, there's an interesting uh, transfer of liability issue. The only way that this model makes sense is if you are subscribing to a car that is owned and that liability, the insurance is taken on by a larger player, like, say, Uber. Like, okay. yeah, I, I, I just call saying. a car, or even if I own a car, I don't own the car. I'm subscribing or licensing right, that car, because the chain of liability is too complicated if I own the car, someone else created the software. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, and, and this is one of those examples where the innovation started in a certain area, but the whole ecosystem is yet to catch up and congeal, including, you know, the, the world in which we live. Um, the ideal thing would have been the United States, right, or the, whatever territory we're talking about, underwrites this whole thing, rolls out streets with sensors, rolls out all these, like, high, like low latency or highly responsive um, traffic signals, communications, whatever needs to communicate to the vehicle what the vehicle needs yeah. to do. And that the software was there for vehicles to know how to talk to each other and negotiate if negotiation ever had to occur or what have you. And then they took on all of the risk of this. And in doing so, they would say, hey, I'm going to defray the cost of cops that I got to send to accidents, right? I'm going to defray the cost of ambulatory services or things that happen, right? Yeah. Sending people to the ER, what have you. And, you know, if we made that kind of an argument, it would be beneficial for the whole country to roll out this infrastructure around self-driving cars. But instead, it started with the automakers. And really, it started well, it with some developers. Yeah, it actually. didn't start with automakers, yeah, right? It, it started didn't. with the you know tech guys. Yeah, it started with like the engineers that are all over the valley, right? That are like, we should be able to do this and all over Seattle and well, other markets too. Yeah, and to that point, you know, I don't know if you've seen the recent news articles that Tesla is going to start doing their own insurance programs. And I just think that's an outgrowth of this argument I was making earlier that they, if they're going to roll out self-driving cars, yep. they want to be in control of that liability as well, right? So they're doing all the underwriting there. <laughs> like if there's a claim they deal with, it's like forced arbitration almost for this issue. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can see that. I mean, if we're going to do self-driving cars, I want to get to like self-driving little mini unjuice-sized submarines. <laughs> All right. Like right along in the ocean floor. That's what I want to do yeah. recreationally. But no, I think I think it's going to be interesting to see in the next 10 years how the various agencies come together on this. And I actually think if you look at what happened with the Max 8, there's a powerful example there of technology got so far ahead of how human beings are actually going to use it, right? Pilots yeah. that are operating this equipment. 
And, you know, probably the right checks and balances didn't happen on the part of any of the players that had the power to look at this and say, this is probably making something more complicated than it needs to be to achieve the stated objective. We're going to have, now that that's happened, and we still have max eights grounded, I think the future for self-driving cars is actually going to get pushed further out. Yeah. And I think there's another interesting issue with the, with that, as I was speaking with someone who's a pilot, and I won't say who they are or what airline they work for. Their point was um, what exacerbated the problems with that technology or that where there were, you know, uh, fatal accidents, the number of hours that the pilots had in training and experience was like 10x less than you would get in, you know, the US or Europe. And that, you know, like there was too much reliance on like the technology to make up for that difference. And it can't. You know, I I think that's true. But I also think that that's giving and and no offense, because Boeing, I know you're a Chicago company. And thank you for contributing to my former home city. Um, I look at that and I have to say, okay, you can't just model users that are most advanced power users. You've got to look at your general sets of users, oh, all the segments. If you're letting someone buy the plane. Exactly. And <laughs> I mean, you should be throwing in the training when it comes to something yeah. like that. And, and Boeing is paying the price, right? I mean, yeah. look at look what's going on with them. Yeah. It's amazing to me that their stock is where it's at right now. But that's, that's, again, like comes down to understand your users and understand their human limitations and understand their aspirations and also understand like what their frustrations are. So you have to kind of understand their huge emotional spectrum here. And for pilots, it's so critical because they have to make decisions in like split seconds that yep. impact everything about the experience. So that was just sort of, in my opinion, that's a perfect example of not enough user testing, not enough understanding of users, not enough experience design, yep. um, thinking around what really happens. And a lot of focus on the optimistic best case, not enough focus on the what happens in more threatening situations yep. or circumstances. Which you'd hope they would do. Yeah. I mean, yes, you would, especially with something like that. So, but I think it's it's a good cautionary tale for self-driving cars, right? And for, or autonomous anything, autonomous vehicles, autonomous drones, what? Or even AI that is offering you coupons, right? So it seems innocuous, but suddenly when you get into these situations where you're being characterized in a certain way by machine learning that is not reviewed by humans. And it's going to be very interesting uh, going forward. All this knowledge is self-perpetuating, right? So all these data points that are hovering around your personage, if the machine learning algorithms start attaching things to you, it's going to snowball. No, I totally... So to say that there are no kind of ramifications for that or that there's no kind of moral hazard, I think is naive. I would agree with that. And and I... Well, you're you're a marketing genius, so I'll just ask you. <laughs> if you if you think about marketing automation, like, there's been such a heavy emphasis on it in the last ten years. It's completely shifted the entire industry yep. for marketing. And now I look around, and most of the campaigns, most of the ways that a brand tries to touch me, are so uninteresting. I'm bored to tears. Yeah. And and that's sort of a that's a lost opportunity. Like, what happened to the great CMOs who would wow you by evoking emotions, by creating some kind of a provocative Um, engagement with a product or the experience. So what I think um, you're seeing is that marketers are trying to bring risk down to zero, right, in their markets. They want to make sure that they're putting an offer that aligns with this specific person for this specific thing, that there's almost 100% chance that it is something this person would want. That's great. But suddenly, if you kind of do the calculus and bring risk down to zero, you also are marginalizing your reward down to zero, right? So there's not gonna be this breakout either. So what we're doing is we're showing people kind of an echo chamber. I like Neil Stevenson books, right? So I go to Amazon, I buy a Neil Stevenson book. All I see for the next three weeks are ads for old Neil Stevenson books, which if they really understood me, they'd realize I've read them all already, right? I've seen all these. What there needs to be in all of these systems, I think, are wild cards, right? You need to set, again, set aside 5%. something to try and find the patterns that no one's looking for yet, right? Right. So, or just emergence, right? You look at how neighborhoods emerge, like from historically, it was always this one, like someone took a, took a left turn they weren't expecting. They found something interesting. They started going that way more. Other people kind of saw them going that way. And it wasn't because we could predict that if we can get them to turn left, they're going to like this thing. It's that accidental discovery and an emergence that actually grows the pie. Yeah, there is a lot of serendipity to innovation, which is in, just like with experimentation in general, right? Or any kind of a creative exploit. Yeah, when all of these marketing automation systems and 
customer tracking and all these things try to emphasize the things you've already done. They're rearward facing. There's no discovery built in to these systems. And so we may get really efficient at giving someone the thing that they probably would have bought anyway and then saying, look how awesome we are, right? I can look at that whole chain and say, we showed them an ad for cat food. Yep. They clicked through, they bought cat food. But the truth is, this person owns a cat. They were going to buy cat food and they're probably going to buy that cat food anyway. Yeah, And we showed them this ad because they were buying either that cat food already or something that is a trade-off for that cat food. That I don't think we're growing these markets using these tools. They're making those constant connections maybe more efficient, but it's not allowing for discovery. I think that's right. Well, or in another way, the way I might think about that is, hey, you made it really easy for me to discover the same old stuff over and over again, but you stopped inspiring me. If I'm not inspired, I'm just going to go back and do what I do, like get back into my headspace, right? And do yep. what I do for a living because I used to love looking at Super Bowl ads, right? I mean, I used to love just yeah. a lot of entertainment that was out there in the form of advertising and I feel like a lot of that is just lost, the artistry. Like there's not yeah. just enough demand for something cool that will evoke emotions. It ain't creative unless it sells. There's that. Back to money. Back to money. <laughs> Back to money. All right. So we are getting close probably to when uh, we both need to move on to other meetings because we are awesome executives with all kinds of things to do. Um, and I need to caffeinate. So I'm going to give you a couple of uh, speed round questions. How do you feel about that? Oh, okay. Let's do it. It's like lightning round. Lightning round. Um, that may or may not have anything to do with your job or innovation. All right. I like it even better. Um, recommend three books to our listeners. Oh, okay. Um, Moby Dick, which I recently read. That's impressive. I, I can <laughs> I can honestly say I've not read Moby it's Dick. It's trippy. I, I mean, I did not think it was going to be trippy. It was really trippy. Um, I actually really like the hard thing about hard things. And Who wrote see, that? And Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz. And if you're if you're into rap, you're going to see a lot of references that um, that you'll be amused by and entertained with. Oh, God, how could I forget this? Bad Blood, the story of Theranos. Um, fascinating. I, I found it fascinating at so many levels. And I have to tell you, the fact that it was written by a journalist, it's, um, it's genius because he tells the story the way the onion should unpeel as if it were a series of exposés. And I'm not kidding you. Like, I was reading it, and then I had to convert to audiobook while I was in the car. And so the person I was in the car with for a good five-hour drive with me agreed to start listening at chapter three in. And with, at the end of each chapter, it's like, no way. That could not have happened. And you're just looking at each other like completely dumbfounded. Like, how is how is this possible? It must be an art, like a different reality. But I would say Bad Blood was super interesting. And, and it was an interesting study into people and biases and how not asking the hard questions, not being radically candid, not questioning your assumptions um, leads to a bunch of bad decision making that becomes foundational for what I would call poor moral decisions. Yeah, I look at Theranos, too, as the um, the dark side of the storytelling technology power, right? Yeah. So, like, you know, you can create a really compelling story that can obviously get you, you know, a valuation in the billions without actually having anything that's technically feasible to make. Yeah. We've all seen the, the Venn diagram of what innovation really is, and it has to be desirable, right? So they had that part, they had that story down, but they didn't have the technologically feasible or financially sustainable part down. To your point, somebody really should have been asking like, okay, how do we fill in these other circles and how do we understand whether this is something anyone can do? Because there were scientists all over the yeah. world raising their hands, politely, impolitely, some screaming at the top of their lungs like, this is not possible. From a physics perspective. From yeah, this is going to be a statement about the valley that I think probably isn't as contentious as I'm currently feeling like it might be saying it in Chicago. You know, one of the best recipes for a successful, scalable startup is you pair really disciplined operators with the visionaries, right? And the founders usually are not the chief product officers in the long run. They hire somebody to help them stay in the transformational space and help the person that's executing stay in the execution space and make all of it work together. So one of the other requirements to being a great startup in the Valley is you have to have a truly hyper-passionate, very emotionally involved, undetached you know, leader that is the visionary. And I'll tell you, because we find that so intoxicating intellectually in the Valley, we have a very tough time trying to hem it in. We have a very tough time at times questioning whether or not it's well-placed. We have a very tough time being disciplined as investors. And I mean, I've made this mistake as a venture capitalist too. You get so taken by you know what someone's telling you and you know they're authentically taken by it. They're not right. telling you lies. But it's very hard to sit there and have the discipline to say, I'm going to make sure this thing is real. I'm going to help it stay real. I'm going to 
make it more real because it leads to disappointing conversations, right? Like nobody wants to take the wind out of a visionary's sail, but sometimes you got to actually say, we need to tack, right? Like we need right. to like, we need to change direction on this. Um, and I think Theranos is a case study in how nobody really like hemmed her in. I'm not sure there was anywhere to hammer in. I that think, may be possible, uh, too. I mean, my humble opinion is she was just a, a con man or con con woman. Yeah, I don't um, know if she started out that way. Maybe she did, but people let her operate that way for a long time, right? And it's not one person. Well, I, I will be willing to accept that she was the Dunning-Kruger effect in action, right? So the people with the least qualifications perceive the problem to be so much easier, and they believe that, oh, I could totally do this, because they don't really understand how hard it is. Yeah. Right? They are, you know, kind of willfully ignorant or just naive. Yeah, and, I could... And I can see that as the start, but there's just too much in this story that you realize she has to know at some point that this is not going to work, and she's playing a confidence game. Yeah, I mean, so her psychology... I think her psychology is an interesting case study in and of itself, but that aside, I think it's a huge case study on bad process for everybody that was involved, that touched her, that knew her, even your friends, right? I mean, at some point, you have to have people that you've worked with long enough, which I don't know if she maintained those relationships. They have to be able to come back to you and say, hey, you know, you've been hitting your head against this wall for a while. Maybe this doesn't work, right? So, yeah. Anyway, we can, we're can. we probably going to get sued for all this. <laughs> like, anyway. Well, she's got other she's got bigger fish lawsuits. to fry, as they say, yeah. Hey, yeah, so what are you reading? So what I'm not reading, what I want to read right now is um, Mike Isaac's new book, um, Super Pumped, about Uber. Oh. Mike Isaac is the New York Times kind of tech writer, startup writer. You, I'm sure you've read his stuff, whether you know it or not. I need to I need to read more of his stuff, apparently. Um, I get his newsletter, too. I don't remember what it's called. But every like month or so, he sends out like an email newsletter. Um, he's a pretty funny dude. Okay. Um, and pretty intolerant, in a good way, like of, of bro behavior. Okay. So. Funny is underrated. I like funny. Yeah. I like funny in all contexts, especially the most serious ones. So is there any um, final piece of advice you'd like to give listeners about innovation? Yes. I would say if you don't believe you're an innovative person, you should ask yourself why. And then you should probably try to fix that. But separately, if you ask yourself, are you an innovative person? And you say the answer is yes, then... If you want to be really happy and feel really fulfilled in life, focus on the problems where innovation and transformation are involved, because there's something truly emotionally, psychologically, intellectually liberating about doing the thing you were meant to do. And I think for innovators in particular, there's so much just like natural, organic, good power in like knowing that you're on track with doing something that gives you great meaning and is more importantly going to deliver meaning to a whole bunch of other people. So, you know, ask yourself the question, have a mantra, have a daily mantra, whatever it is, and have a have a focal point. So, and the focal point, it doesn't have to be the success of the thing that you're working on, but it has to be something that you focus on that's way out in the future world that you have designed around the thing that you're inventing that is not that thing that will make you feel like when you see the semblance of that on the horizon, you're entering that zone, yep. that time horizon. It's, it just helps to be encouraged to have that kind of a focal point change the human condition. Don't try to make stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all about empowering humanity. I mean, that's why we're here, right? Certainly why I wake up. <laughs> I, I would hope I can wake up even if I'm not changing humanity, but yes. I mean, coffee helps, but yeah, <laughs> it is about empowering humanity. Well, thank you very much, Anju, for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for uh, letting me share my future optimism, butterflies and all. This has been another episode of Brilliant. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe or leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. Brilliant is a production of Magnani, an experienced design and strategy firm. To learn more, visit magnani.com. <laughs>